Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. We broadcast from the UC Irvine campus and stream live at KUCI.org. Past shows can be had wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know who's coming up, visit my website, penonfire.com, and subscribe to the e-list. Today, I'm very happy to welcome novelist Mary Camarillo. She's here to talk about her debut novel, The Lockhart Woman, published by She Writes Press. Hi, Mary. Let's talk about, as we always do, let's talk about your new novel and how the story came about. Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for inviting me to do this with you. I've been a fan of your show for such a long time, and you are responsible for my overflowing bookshelves. So <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I started writing this book about six years ago. Um, I'd been thinking a lot at that time about choices and regrets. I got married when I was 36, and I never had any children. And one thing that frequently happens to me is that people will say, oh, you're so smart not to have children. Oh, you're so smart to have waited longer to get married. I, I wish that I would have waited. I feel like I've missed out so much on life. And I always thought that was very surprising and interesting because I've, I felt the opposite way. I, I felt like I had missed out on a lot. And I think people have regrets and they, you know, they wonder about their choices. So I was thinking towards those ideas and I wanted to write towards that. I usually try to write about things I don't really understand. And another thing I don't really understand is mother-daughter-sister relationships because although of course I had a mother, I've never been one. And I am a sister, but I don't have one. So I'm really interested in those relationships and that's what I wanted to explore. Well, you've created kind of a complicated family here. Um, I'm curious where these three women came from, two or young women, very young women when the story begins. And, and then Brenda is the mother. And um, when the story begins, she is um, married to her um, husband that is, uh, has, has roaming eyes. So talk about actually the beginning and, and kind of, was this always the beginning? And did you know that you know, there were going to be two daughters, there was going to be a mother and father coupled that were having some problems. I mean, talk about sort of the inception of all this. It's gone through a lot of changes. I originally started writing it about the youngest daughter at a later point in her life. And then I was having trouble getting into her character. So someone suggested, you know, think about her family. What was her family like? And once I met Brenda, she kind of took over the story. Brenda was really fun to write. Um, she's larger than life and impetuous and says whatever comes into her head and always thinks she's right. So I, I enjoyed writing her a lot. I think all the characters really come from me. I think they're all different parts of me. And then I also base them on, you know, different women that I've known throughout my life, little pieces here and there. Brenda is um, interesting because I, I'm sure she's based on someone in my family. And um, I and I wonder if maybe she's like someone in everyone's family, but she wasn't, I didn't find her entirely likable, but I found her eminently readable. Like she is kind of complicated and um, 
she doesn't always make the best choices, but she is a survivor. And um, so was she a composite? Was she a composite of people that you know? I think um, I think so. And I, I like that comment about unlikable. I've actually been told that all three women are not really that likable. I mean, I think they all have their moments and they all eventually come to make better decisions. But I, I, I hope that they come across as really human because that's the kind of character I like. Well, that, you know, that's interesting because there, there's always this ongoing conversation about likable characters versus unlikable characters. And, and I, I think the main thing I look for is, am I interested? You know, it's like, I don't care if they're likable or unlikable, but am I interested? And, and do I keep reading and are the characters compelling? And so I found them all compelling and, um, you know, but it's interesting that do we talk about male characters as being likable or, or unlikable? I don't think we do. I think it's always about female characters. They're somehow supposed to be likable, I suppose. We need to change those rules. I think we do need to change those rules. Um, and Allison, I mean, she, she well, her, her life kind of mirrors her mother's, right? She's, she seems to be a, a younger version of um, Brenda. How did you see her? How did she come, come alive for you? I was wondering what it would be like to have a daughter in this day and age. Actually, this is set in the 90s, but still a daughter that really only wants to be a, a wife and mother. I mean, normally kids now that I know anyway, they all want to be, I don't know, rock stars, athletes, doctors, lawyers. You hardly ever hear a young person say, well, I really just want to be a mom and I want to make a man happy. I wonder how I would feel if I was that mother. So I guess I was exploring that idea, especially if I was a mother like Brenda who had taken the same path. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then Peggy, um, the oldest daughter, works at the post office at the behest of her father, who is a long-term post office employee. And I don't think we've seen the post office featured so prominently since Bukowski, have we? <laughs> well, you probably know this, but I had a long career with the Postal Service. Um, yes. I, I didn't intend to. I think it's kind of in my DNA. I had two grandfathers that were both railway mail clerks and that's how my parents met. When I started working there, um, I didn't go to college after high school, I went to work. And what I would do is I would work for a while and save money and then I go on a long, nice long trip. And I came back from backpacking in Europe. My girlfriend said, hey, they're hiring at the post office, let's go take the test. So I got hired, didn't plan on staying very long but ended up making a career out of it. And I always thought there were so many stories. I mean, people work weird hours. Um, it's an insular kind of group where you, you feel like nobody really understands you except the people that you work with, especially when you work graveyard. So a lot of drama, a lot of, uh, you know, different cultures coming together. That was, you know, I pretty much grew up in a white bubble. So working at the post office was illuminating for me, getting to work with all different kinds of people. So I stayed on there for a long time. Um, I know it sounds corny, but I believe in universal mail service. And I, I think I felt really good when the mail went out every morning on the trucks and I knew that it was going to people's homes. 
and there's a lot of different things to do there too. So it's, it was, it was a good career for me. And then you're writing fiction. And at what point did you go, you know what, this is going to be in the book. Some of the, everything in the book really happened at the post office. I did change the names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more that could have gone in. I guess I was trying to not make it be 6,000 pages long. (laughs) Speaking of length, I mean, I thought it was a really nice length. Um, Sometimes I become a bit upset if books are too long. And um, I don't think I ever am upset when books are on the slim side. You know, I, I kind of like slimmer books, but this was perfect, I thought. And um, so I'm curious if it, if it was longer. I mean, did you have to cut to get it to this size or because I have a feeling in reading, it's like you did such nice character development. And I really did feel that I got to know all the all the characters so well. And, and as I was reading, then I was thinking, because I have the opposite problem, I tend to write minimally and have to add in. Do you tend to write more and have to cut back? I write a lot more. Yeah. And when I originally, um, this book was accepted for publication, it was 106,000 words. And I, I actually cut it down to 93,000 words after that, um, on my own. I mean, it was my idea. I just because I had a little bit of time to, to look at it before publication, I kept thinking, yeah, I could slim this down. I could slim this down. So yeah, I, I write a lot more and I, um, I, you know, I move stuff into files called use this later uh-huh. <laughs> and hope that I can find it. <laughs> Can't always find it, but yeah, I, I tend to overwrite. So how long is, is this then? How long was the finished the absolute finish. It's uh, 93,000 words. 93. Mm, yeah. It's a good size. Yeah, I'm noticing lately I'm reading a lot of books that seem really slim to me. And I think, wow, I should try to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, how to write a slim book and have enough character in it, right? And that it, tend, it tends to be a problem. You, you know, it's like we don't know necessarily know the characters well enough when it's too slim, although I, I like reading screenplays even. So, um, you know, and there you get no character development, basically. You know, you're getting action, you're getting visuals, um, you're getting lots of dialogue. But um, I don't know, this, I, I thought this was kind of perfect, the size it is. And I was curious too about the alternating points of views and when that came in, when you decided to do that. Initially, I got a lot of feedback about Brenda that she was um, pretty impossible to deal with for an entire length of a book. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, switching up the point of view. Um, plus, I love rotating points of view. I, I like seeing characters from different angles. So I thought it would be really fun to have the daughters talk about Brenda and Brenda think about the daughters and the sisters think about each other. I think, I think it allows a lot of richness that um, you can't just do from one point of view. Are there novels that you um, used as 
oh, a template of sorts or, or, you know, novels that you thought, you know, I wish I wrote that. I wish, you know, I want to do something like that. I love Olive Kitteridge. I mean, that Elizabeth, and anything by Elizabeth Stroud, I, I just, number one, I love unsympathetic characters and Olive is certainly one of those. But, but you also, she's, she's prickly and she says awful things, but she's a really good neighbor. And, you know, deep down inside, she's, she's got a good heart. Right. And I love the way that Elizabeth Strout showed Olive from different points of view, from her neighbors and her, her husband and her children. So yeah, that's, I would aspire towards that. Mm. Well, I'd love to hear you read from the Lockhart Women. Would you read? Going to read from the beginning, but I'm going. I'm going to um, do a little setup first. Yeah, um, sure. The book's about a family in Huntington Beach, California, and it starts on June 17, 1994. So, like we've already talked about, Frank Lockhart, the husband, works at the post office. His wife Brenda is a stay-at-home mom, and they have two teenage daughters, Allison, 17, and Peggy's 18. So, um, this is. On June 17th, 1994, the family is on the freeway. And, you know, maybe I'll give a little bit more background about the OJ part of it, because I, I think we need to talk about that too. Um, this, the novel starts on the night of June 17th, 1994, which is the night of the OJ Simpson chase. And that's the nice night that Frank tells Brenda that he's gonna leave her for another woman that he works with who is older and in Brenda's always judgmental opinion much less attractive. So Brenda sits down on the couch and gets hooked on the media coverage surrounding the Simpson trial. And she's convinced he's innocent. Her two daughters, uh, meanwhile, are making their own mistakes. So that's, you, you learn that fairly early in the, in the novel, but the night that it starts is on the night of the chase. Okay. So the family's on the freeway, the traffic's moving like it does in LA, and then all of a sudden it stops. Nobody knows why, but people start pulling over. And the youngest daughter says, why are all those people standing on the overpass? Brenda looks up and indeed, there are dozens of people on the overpass staring intently through the chain link fence of the freeway below. A few of them hold signs. Honk, if you love the juice. Run, OJ, run. The man driving the green Corolla in front of them shuts off his engine and gets out of his car. Frank rolls down his window. What are you doing? OJ's making a run for it, the man says. He's behind us now in a white Bronco heading this way. The juice is loose, a woman getting out of a car behind them yells. The crowd is giddy with the exhilaration of standing on the normally forbidden freeway. On the southbound side, cars are parked in the carpool lane and their passengers lean over the center divider as if they are joining a neighborhood barbecue. Let's get out. Frank turns off the engine and jumps out of the truck, both girls right behind him. Be careful, Brenda says, as he reaches for Allison's hand and glances over his shoulder, waiting for Peggy. She smiles. He might not be a faithful husband or a forgiving man, but he's always been a good father. She gets out too and leans against the hood of Frank's truck. It's a beautiful metallic blue color, a nice contrast to her white midriff top. The circus atmosphere around her, however, is unsettling. This morning's newspaper said OJ's two young children slept through the attack on their mother and that the entranceway to Nicole's pink stucco house was slick with blood. Brenda hasn't been able to get the images out of her head. She feels a rumbling sound overhead as a swarm of helicopters hovers above the freeway. 
The blades stir the warm mid-June evening into a dusty cloud of cigarette butts, drink straws, and fast food wrappers. Lights flash from the tops of at least 20 police cars and half a dozen motorcycle cops. The noise from the crowd intensifies as people cheer. Brenda's heart beats faster as a white Bronco with dark tinted windows approaches, barely going 20 miles an hour. She doesn't recognize the man hunched over the steering wheel, but she's seen the larger man in the back seat before. He came into the steakhouse where she worked years ago before she was married. O.J. Simpson staring right at her right now with big brown eyes. He doesn't look like a murderer. He looks like a grieving man with a dead wife and two motherless children. She raises her right hand and waves. He nods slightly as a Bronco passes, followed by more police cars and motorcycles. They all climb back in the truck. OJ looked right at me, Brenda says. I think he recognized me. Frank snorts, from where? He came into the steakhouse once, I told you that. He said in a different section, but I must have made an impression. It's been 20 years since you worked there, Frank says. There's no way he'd remember you, although you are his type. What's that supposed to mean? She knows from the newspapers, Nicole Simpson was also tall, tanned, and Orange County raised, but Nicole had a huge chin, which took away from her prettiness. Brenda's chin is nowhere near that large. Blonde and beautiful, of course, Frank says. It doesn't sound like a compliment. Hmm. So stop there. Thank you so much. That was Mary Camarillo reading from the Lockhart Women published by She Writes Press. You know, as you were reading that, I was thinking about how you um, showed the reader what Brenda looks like. It's really hard to describe characters, I think, in, in kind of a seamless way. Um, and you, you did a really nice job right there because now we have this image, you know, everybody, everybody, most of us have seen Nicole Simpson, pictures of Nicole and, you know, so now we can picture Brenda. And that's, it's kind of interesting, her judgmental side about Nicole's chin, you know, it's, um, <laughs> that, that little section does quite a lot just in terms of Brenda, right? Her character. The character, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and why 1994? Well, it's really a pivotal moment in American television. Um, it's the beginning of reality television. You know, remember the show, The Real World had started a few years before. Um, and I think the day of the Simpson chase, it was almost like an episode of The Real World from, you know, Simpson's supposed to turn himself in. And then we cut to Kardashian's house and Kardashian's reading very emotionally what sounds like a suicide letter. And then all of a sudden we're on the freeway and we're following him. And then also court TV was um, just coming into its own about that time. And when cameras were allowed throughout the whole trial, that made it seem like another episode of court TV. It's also the rise of Kardashian fame, um, which they you know, translated into a huge empire. This is the first time helicopters were used um, in television news, one of the first times um, which kind of seared the image of the Bronco on the freeway. And I really like those, those flashbulb kind of moments, like, you know, like, like Kennedy's assassination and 9-11 and the Challenger explosion. We all tend to remember exactly where we were and who we were with and how we felt. It kind of gets seared in your inner brains. So. Mm -hmm. 
and then selfishly, you know, I'm <laughs> first time novelist. Um, I'm a lot better at writing character than I am plot. So I, it was really helpful for me to have something to frame my story around, to give it a timeline, to keep it moving forward. So that's another reason I used the, the trial. Yeah, you know, I thought the plot worked well. Um, you know, you kept things moving. I, I don't recall there being a, a scannable moment where you just go, you know what, I'm going to just scan this chapter, skim this chapter and go on to the next. I mean, it all kind of kept moving. And um, so I don't know. I don't know if I, I I'm not going to disagree with you because we all, we all, I don't know, know or, or feel what our, our um, weaknesses are as writers, but I didn't notice there being a problem, you know, with plot. It just seemed like it's all, there were a lot of moving parts. And so what I was wondering was how you kept track of everything. I mean, there was a lot going on and a nice balance of everything going on. How do you keep track? Um, I don't really have a very good way. I use Word and I print a lot of stuff out and I sit on the floor and make new piles of paper. <laughs> I, I admire people that do these wonderful, you know, bulletin board, cork boards and put little stickies. Maybe that would be more efficient. I, I didn't use that for this. I, it was pretty much all in my head and then on piles of paper. Mm. Yeah, piles of paper. F Flannery O'Connor said, uh, writing novels is, is messy, right? And it's so <laughs> messy. It's be easier being a poet, I think, with uh, I would a, love slimmer, to be a poet. <laughs> slimmer pile of paper, you know, not, not, uh, not reams, but maybe, you know, a few, maybe 20, 30 pages. I don't know. <laughs> That's not to minimize what poets do, but it's just the, uh, the, the absence of piles, I think, is what's appealing about that. I just have the impression poets have more fun than fiction writers. <laughs> yeah, I think they do. <laughs> I, think, I think they're happier people, actually. Um, so the book goes to 2008. So then why that end? Why 2008? I was trying to frame it around the Simpson trial. That was the third um, Simpson trial. He, you know, goes to prison finally for stupidly botching a robbery when he was trying to get his wife's wedding ring back. And it just, it seemed like a good place to end. So. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny the whole Simpson thing because I remember my son was born um before the trial began maybe I think somewhere around there and I remember just watching that with him as you know a newborn and um and so your book kind of took me back to that time it's like oh right that was happening and you know Furman bringing in you know the cop and and um yeah it was it was a nice flashback I I kind of enjoyed that I read a, a study that Nielsen did of the top 50 show television shows. And it's really interesting how they're not sports or entertainment. They're all news. And number three is October 3rd, 1995, when Simpson was declared innocent. Mm. And number six is, is the chase. So it's, it's, like I said, it's an interesting period in TV history. It's, 
you know, we feel like we know celebrities. People liked OJ. They they want they didn't want to believe he was a murderer. So it's it was a really interesting period of time. Yeah, yeah, it it, it was. Allison, daughter Allison, has a problem with stealing. How, 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 did, uh, how did that come into the mix? Well, I guess I can admit this now, but I used to be a little bit of a klepto myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find it really fascinating how we have all these different words which is for something that is basically stealing. Like we say, oh, it's light-fingered, oh, or she's just taking advantage, or... She's a shoplifter. No, it's it's all stealing. But Allison needs some agency. Um, she's in with a group of, gr of girls at school that have a little bit more money and want her to dress a certain way. So plus, I think she feels like she feels powerful. I think that's that's one reason people steal things. Mm -hmm. She actually is stealing things that she wants or that other people want, which isn't true of all shoplifters or kleptomaniacs or... I've just like stolen ashtrays and beer trays and things like that. <laughs> what did you do with them? Oh, I have them. They're souvenirs. <laughs> oh, see, I don't see that as being, see, that's interesting because I don't see that as being like a klepto thing. I see that as being just wanting a souvenir, like you said. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you should pay for it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> seems more I, fun you know <laughs> yeah I took a one of those um square glasses from El Torito grill ones that I still have and I think it was like that I just I just really wanted this souvenir and I you know I haven't thought about that for years I mean this glass is probably I don't know 20 years old 30 years old um I wonder what I thought back then, you know, did I think of it as stealing or did I think of it as, you know, we paid all this money for a meal. I'm taking this glass. I want this glass, but, but it is a kind of entitlement, right? I mean, cause you think, you know, for whatever that, that it's okay. That it's I okay. need this. So yeah. I, therefore I will take it. Yeah. Right. I don't think I've ever. These are, my characters are all entitled people that are living in a, in a bubble. You know, they're, they're not, they're not woke people. They're, they're like a lot of people I know, like myself sometimes, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's interesting. Um, hmm. Well, I guess, you know, one thing I noticed about the book too was the nice balance of narrative summary and scene. And as I was reading, I was thinking that the novel is a good study for writers on how to write in scene without sacrificing narrative. And so, of course, then I was wondering about you as a writer and if, if that is an aspect of writing that comes more easily to you. I'm glad to hear you say that. That's, that's, that's what I was hoping to accomplish. I, I think that's what I mean by to help to have a, another story to frame this to. I mean, at one point I was actually taking direct quotes from the LA Times for that day's 
day's news and like inserting them in and then trying to figure out how to rework them so they would actually flow with the story. Mm -hmm. So I, I think having a framework really helped me with that part. So, so say a little bit more about that, having a framework. Um, well, the story has to keep moving forward, right? I mean, a scene needs to leave you hanging and like waiting for something, what's gonna happen next. So, so do, do you do outlines or, or you know, plot boards or um, anything like that so you know where you're going? Strictly seat of the pants kind of a writer, which is completely inefficient. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wish I wish that I had an outline. I, I think as I got you know maybe into six or seven drafts, I started realizing, okay, this should happen this month, and this should happen. Just just trying to try it back, tie it back to the trial, and trying to make sure that things were logically still in order. It's kind of a loose outline after a while, but initially, no, it's just, it's write about this character and make stuff happen to them and see how the character reacts. Mm. Mm. Did you know the end point? Or at what point did you know where the ending would be? I kind of wanted Brenda to end up on the freeway like she started. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> 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 Well, that doesn't tell us what exactly happened with her, <laughs> what changes what changes she went through. Yeah. Um, I wanted her to change, but I, I also wanted to be realistic. I, I know that's the advice we all get is there's got to be change for a story to be a real story. I, I would argue that not all characters really change. People go through stuff and it changes them and Maybe they see things a little bit differently. I, I, I wouldn't say that Brenda has a remarkable change by the end of the book. She does make better choices, but, and all the characters do. They, they go through a lot. They're changed by their circumstances. And I think they all recognize the importance of family by the end. Mm -hmm. hmm. You are listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Mary Camarillo. Her book is The Lockhart Women published by She Writes Press. So you have written and published short fiction and poetry. And I'm, I'm curious if that was all a prelude to writing the novel or do you use um, shorter pieces as palate cleansers? Well, I like that word palate cleansing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to work on a lot of things at the same time because um, I'm fairly obsessive about working on something every day. So yeah, I, I, I'm totally surprised when anything I'm working on turns into a poem, but I, I would love to be a poet. I don't think that's my strong, my strong point. I, I like stories. Um, short fiction is even harder than writing a novel, I think. In a novel, you can spread out and put all kinds of details in. And in a short, a short fiction, everything's got to be there for a purpose. Mm. So, yeah, I go back and forth. I've even been experimenting a little bit with essays lately, which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. hmm. Had the Lockhart women, um, did it begin as a novel? Did you know it was going to be a novel? You know, originally, I was trying to write, um, well, Brenda started off as a short story about a woman going to Cuba. And... <laughs> 
completely different. It's gone through all kinds of changes, but I, I really got a lot of her personality in that story. Mm-hmm. And I, I still think it's a good story. I tried to get it published for a good couple of years and finally have put it on the back burner. But yeah, yeah, she started off as a short story. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And likewise, have you ever written anything that you thought would be a novel or written a lot of pages? And, and you know what? This is going to be a short story. And reduced it down. Exactly. I mean, this novel originally started off as um, a story about Allison and her husband, who was a famous chef in New Orleans at a later part in their life, and they're not very happy. And he eventually gets a food truck. And then all of a sudden that movie Chef comes out, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which was almost exactly the same story. Mm. And I thought, you know what, I think I can use some of this material, but not like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the publishing, the business end of publishing the Lockhart Women. Uh, And She Writes Press, talk about going with She Writes. I I can be a pretty stubborn person. And originally I was bound and determined I was gonna publish traditionally, which meant I had to find an agent. So I queried, because like I said, I am stubborn, over a hundred agents. I started querying small presses and I kept hearing the same thing that either nothing, which is, you know, that happens a lot. You never hear anything. Or I would hear, yeah, let's have some more pages. And then I would send more pages and they would say, this is good writing. We like the story, but we just don't think we can sell it. And in hindsight, I can kind of see why now. Um, Like I said, it was way too long. Um, it's also a, a weird time period. The 80s and the 90s are not historical fiction and they're not really contemporary fiction. And then I'm also an older writer with no social platform. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not anyone's idea of a media star. So, so I heard about She Writes Press from several people I really respected. Um, I sent them the manuscript and they loved it and they wanted to publish it. And It's a hybrid pet press. Um, It's also a feminist press, which means it's run by and publishes only women. And what um, hybrid means is that the author invests in the project, which is expensive, but in my opinion, and at my point in life, it's completely worth it. All the books are vetted. They don't take just anything. And the results are professional and they're actually completely award-winning. They've won a ton of awards this year. Um, the books are distributed by Ingram Publish- Publishing Services, which is really huge because it means that my book is available for purchase everywhere. If I would have tried to self-publish, that would not have been the case. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to be involved in the entire publication process, the title selection, the cover design, the page design. But I was working with experts, with people that really knew what they were doing, instead of trying to figure it all out myself. And then She Writes Press is also an incredibly supportive community of women who are available to offer their support, their encouragement, their suggestions on how to market and publicize. And that's that part's been really wonderful. It, yeah, I, I love the cover. I think the cover is really kind of beautiful. Um, how it's Julie Metz and she's designed a ton of award-winning cover covers there. Mm-hmm. That's one thing about She Writes Press. Their covers are 
really stunning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the layout, everything looks just great. Um, I, I think hybrid, you know, that it, it confuses people that aren't familiar with what exactly that means. You know, it's, it's like how much is the writer involved? Um, you, you know, because it's not the same as working with a traditional publisher in that you get you have very little say over you know cover design you have very little say over most of what goes on with your book um so with she writes was it sort of it, it was more collaborative very collaborative yeah um the cover um for example originally we were going to go with a little white bronco on a television screen on the cover <laughs> mm -hmm. And we, they came up with some really clever designs, which I kind of liked, but I was a little bit worried about going that direction because the book is not about O.J. Simpson. You know, it's he's on in the background, but it's it's not his story. And then um, they started thinking that it wasn't a good idea to use that image because I guess O.J. Simpson is a little um, Sue happy, like he, <laughs> <laughs> he might've gotten a little bit too int overly interested in the project. So then we started looking at iconic Southern California images and I actually found the image that's on the cover. Just, um, it's just a stock image, but they were able to arrange it so beautifully on, as a cover that I'm really happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, it's, it's really nice. I'm curious about, and you know, back to writing, um, other things that sustain your writing. I mean, what do you do to get away from writing or do you, or do you need to get away from it? You know, what I else? read a ton. I mean, I read a ton of books. I've always been a, a voracious reader. Yeah. And I go for walks. I like to travel, you know, before the pandemic, we had all kinds of plans. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to getting back to that. What did you read as a kid? Um, Nancy Drew, um, anything I could get my hands on, the back of the cereal box, go to the library, get a stack of books, bring them home, devour them. Yeah. And then um, in high school, you know, I started reading Herman Hess and I even um, read a little bit of that Atlas Shrugged Woman's books. Uh -huh. I, <laughs> I think most, yeah, mostly to annoy my English teacher because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in high school I, I wrote poetry and I was editor of the literary magazine. Mm -hmm. And I really thought I was gonna major in journalism, but here's a, here's a regret I have. Here's a big mistake I, I have, I made. Um, I let a, a bad teacher turned me off against going into journalism. She gave me a C in the class because of something that somebody on my team did and just totally made me bitter against the whole thing. So that was a mistake. But you kept writing. Yeah, but I really didn't start writing again until I retired. I mean, huh. I, I, I had um, about 10 years of writing audit reports for the Postal Service. I, I switched over to the Office of Inspector General um, about 10 years before I retired. And I started writing audit reports. And I know this is gonna sound really weird 
and I think an auditor would be really angry with me if I said that there's a lot of similarities between writing audit reports and writing fiction, <laughs> but, but there are, I mean, anything has to be, you know, well-written and readable and interesting if you want anybody to look at it. And although audit reports are formulatic, you know, they have certain elements they have to contain. There's two elements in particular that I think really translate well to fiction and that's cause and effect. I don't want to get too much in the weeds on how to write an audit report, but <laughs> if you if you know you're writing about something that's wrong and you have to have criteria, you know, for why that's wrong, and then you have to um, say what the cause was, and then the, the effect, like who cares, like why why write this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, that's really important in fiction. It's 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 wonderful to write great prose and describe scenery and have realistic dialogue. But if, if your reader doesn't know why the character is behaving that way or why they think they're behaving that way, and if there's no effect, if the reader doesn't really care what the results are, then it's, it's not really a story. So mm. yeah, writing audit reports is, was good training for me. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> you and Bukowski, right? <laughs> Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about something you said a little while ago, and that was that um, you mentioned social media. And so now does, you know, I see you on Instagram and, you know, I'm hardly on social media, but um, is that something that she writes has encouraged you to do? Or did you just take that on yourself to, you know, try to try to be somewhere, whether it's Instagram or I don't know if that's your favorite platform or if you, you do much on Facebook or Twitter. But... I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think one time you described me as a supreme introvert. <laughs> uh, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Which is very accurate. So this is uh, all of it. It's definitely outside my comfort level. Um, but I decided that I was not going to not do things because they scared me. Mm-hmm. And no, she writes press doesn't, they encourage you to have an active social media pre- presence, but you're not required to do anything. I just get all these wonderful ideas from all these other generous writers and I see what they're doing. And I think, oh, I could do that. That might mm-hmm. even be fun. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll try it, you know, what the heck. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm trying, I'm making little videos and I'm pimping my cat out all the time. <laughs> I know. I love your cat. I see your cat all over the place. <laughs> my manager of marketing. He, he was just sitting on my lap, but he's he's afraid I'm going to put another book in front of him. So he's off. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, as writers, we have to do something. We have to be out there. I mean, how to how to gauge whether any of it works or to what extent it works. Who knows? Um I don't know if you've seen any advantages um, to any of the platforms. It's really difficult for me to tell right now because my pub date's not till June 1st. So I don't even really know what my pre-orders are. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and then I don't, everyone says there's no direct correlation between anything. So right. I don't know. I guess my worry is that I'm going to annoy people, you know, <laughs> that people will be sick of me. 
But what I really, I really try to do, and this is the fun part and easy for me to do, is I, I try to shout out other writers and talk about other books and talk about other events. You know, not just about me, because right, right. Yeah, we have we have a pretty strong community of literary people in Orange County. You know, it's we don't yeah. get enough respect, and we need to change that. Yes, yeah, we do. It's true. I mean, there there's so many so many good writers around. I remember when Orange County was considered a wasteland right that there, you know there's writers in orange county <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, you've been really instrumental in that and there's 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 just a lot of things that are going on that need more attention so i'm yeah. happy to do my little bit you know in my little tiny platform and try to shout that stuff out so yeah um I, you know and i think i think word of mouth i mean i think it does more than everyone thinks it does. I mean, we're always writing down books that, book titles that people say, you know, I love this book. Okay, well, let me write it down. Um, it, it may be the, the best way of selling books, um, word of mouth. We're selling them to each other, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is right. Well, what about like, I always like to ask writers how, what you do when you hit a wall um, or how do you get out of your own way when you're having trouble? Like, what do you do when you're writing a scene and you just, you don't know what to do? You know that something has to move. It has to keep moving, but, but how, what, what do you do? Try to stay in the chair instead of, you know, <laughs> going into the Facebook hole or <laughs> reading email. I try to just stay focused on it. But I've also realized that sometimes you just need to get up out of the chair and go do something like pull weeds or wash dishes or fold laundry or just go for a walk. Because those are when I get ideas. That's that's when solutions will sometimes pop back into my head. And then I try to race back to a piece of paper and get that down. Mm -hmm. And then also working on, on different projects. That, that's really helpful. Hmm. So do you, do you have different rooms for different projects? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I used to share an office with my husband, but about six years ago when I got serious about this novel, I, I kicked him out and I have my own office. So no, I just pretty much work in here. Sometimes I, like to, I wish I could be the kind of person that would go to a coffee shop, but yeah, I, I don't really need to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in terms of going, going into a project, um, working on different things, how, how are you directed to the different projects? I mean, do you wake up in the morning and you go, you know, today I'm going to, or is it the night before you go, I'm going to, or is it while you're sitting at your desk going, you know, I just feel nothing for this. I'm going to go work on that. Yeah, definitely that the last thing that you said. But what I really like is when I've had, you know, a good couple of hours and I get to a point and I think, oh, I can see where this is going. And then I know where to start the next day. Mm. That's, that's the best. It's, it's not so great when you work for a couple hours and you think, man, I don't know what I'm doing. So then the next day I might say, how about if I work on an essay today? <laughs> uh -huh. Sure. Yeah, but I think like, as you said earlier, just to do something every day or at least five days a week where you're in it and and not thinking about it 
only thinking about it. You know, I mean, I've had people say, well, I thought about writing today. Did I do something? I'm like, well, you did something, but I don't know that I'd call it writing. Yeah, uh, Richard Bosch, who I know you know, and um, you've, you've been in his workshop, he's he has really good advice. And one thing he says is, you need to have a life. Like you, you, you can't cloister yourself off completely. You, you need to have people in your life and they require things from you. So that's okay. But it's, you should really try to touch the work every day, even if it's only 15 minutes, but, right. you, but you need to touch it and keep it churning in your, in your brain and your heart. So Mm. Yeah, which, you know, brings up something else. And speaking of which, you know, what he said to you, um, is there other advice that has stayed with you over the years um, that that is related to writing? Some things I've kind of stolen from other people and some things I've made up for myself, like, and they're kind of opposite, <laughs> opposites of vice. Um, for example, I think it's important to stay in the chair, but also know when to get up and go for a walk. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to, to be in a writing group. Um, I think it's extremely valuable really to try to help someone with their work because I, that really teaches you a lot about your own. It's, sometimes it's really difficult to see what you need to do with your work, but it's really easy to tell someone else how to make their work better. So I think being in a group is really important, but I also think you have to learn when not to listen to the people in the group. It really troubles me when someone in a workshop will say, okay, I took everyone's advice <laughs> and here's my new product. I think, oh boy, this is not gonna be good. Right. Because you have, you have to learn to you know, believe in yourself and, and know what your voice is. Yeah, yeah, or when, when you know, a group member says, you know, but I did what you all said you wanted me to do. And you go, wait, not everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so confusing sometimes, right? Like, like people will say, well, I think you should set this in Alaska. And someone else will say, no, it needs to be in Mexico. And you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I think when you're in groups, it's good to, it's good to know what um, everybody reads you know like what your frame of reference is so that you know if you're writing literary fiction and there's someone who is focused on say um i don't know romance fiction that you take you know you take their feedback um in a certain way and vice versa you know it's like what what works for say romance um might not you might not want to take the advice from a literary writer exactly or a genre writer a mystery writer I mean it's it's really good to know what everybody's kind of working on and where they're coming from so that I've you can in, um, a couple of workshops. I've been in a couple of workshops this past year with fantasy writers which is it's really interesting because I don't read fantasy but I'm learning a lot I'm learning to admire it and it's all about telling a story, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm also reading that um, since the pandemic, people want to read fantasy. They don't want to read <laughs> gritty, true stories like I write. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something to do, something to that. Maybe I should think about fantasy. <laughs> Will the pandemic uh, show itself in in any future work? Well, I'm, I've written a couple of poems about the pandemic, but. When I'm, my project right now that I I'm really eager to get back to is more contemporary. 
but it is post-Trump and pre-pandemic because I don't think I've really processed the pandemic yet. Mm-hmm. I don't think I processed Trump either, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a more contemporary story. And it's actually going to have male characters. I'm going to be writing from male points of view. So that'll be, that'll be different. Why, why not? You know, <laughs> I mean, why not? <laughs> you know, it's uh, men write from women's points of view all the time. It's like, yeah. Any last words, Mary? Any, any, any additional advice for the writers who are listening? I would just like to thank you for this chance to talk to you and I admire your your literary activism and I, I advise writers to find a writing community because they are so supportive. It's such a wonderful group of people that are generous and wanting to help and even though we're all trying to do the same thing, it's not like we're in competition. So Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. We need community for sure and helps to keep us going as well as uh, get feedback and support and all that. So thank you. Thank you for writing the Lockhart Women. It's been great talking to you about it. I don't think we've ever talked in depth about what you're doing and um, with this book. So yeah, you're welcome. That was Mary Camarillo. Her book is The Lockhart Women, published by She Writes Press. You've been listening to Writers on Writing. Music is by Travis Barrett. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and we're here every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. You can find past shows wherever you get your podcasts. And you writers out there, remember to spend time in the chair or at your standing desk. Have a great week.
Till we're free. Oh, it won't bend till we're free. 